Hello, Liturgy Guy listeners. This is your host, Jesse Weiler, and we have another great episode for you. But first, I want to let you know that registration is now open for our Young Adult Liturgy Conference. So if you want to get the early bird rate, go to www.btransfigured.com. That conference is happening this summer from June 26th through the 28th. This week, Chris Dennis and I are talking about the recent passing of Sir Roger Scruton, a brilliant philosophical mind to say the least, and Dennis had the opportunity to be on a a panel with Sir Roger Scruton, so I will put a link to that video in the show notes. So without further ado, episode 16 of season 4 of The Liturgy Guys. Enjoy. I'm going to talk to you today about the Mass. The liturgy is what enculturates the gospel for us. What are you, some kind of altar boy? And, and it enculturates it into our day-to-day life, our, our day-to-day existence. It's pretty dang exciting, huh? We're called not to some crapshoot called life, but to an adventure in fidelity that beckons us to cast out to the deep. The Liturgical Institute is proud to present The Liturgy Guys. <laughs> That sounds like we have a message for somebody. Well, kind of. It's 2020, and we're back. Nice. Yeah. It's a whole new year, and classes start tomorrow here at Benedictine College. And how many of my three syllabi do I have ready to go at this moment? Four. Four. (laughs) Oh, that's so funny. Zero. So uh, this is the Demeclement, lament, as Chris knows well. I always do everything (laughs) at the last minute. lament. But I still have two days. Wait, where's that from? I just made it up right now. I like it. Yeah. There's some other thing, lament, lamentations, etc. Oh, Lord, how come I can never do anything except the night before? That's my lament. And hopefully you won't need laminations. Well, that's true. No, because that takes time. Mm-hmm. Copy you got to warm very, it up uh, and yeah, you exactly. heat the plastic. You know. But you know what I do not lament about? What? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, my uh, trumpet's a little attitude. Um Vicky Delaney, let's let's give a shout out to Vicky Delaney. Oh, shout out to Vicky! Yeah, we saw her in person at SLS in uh, the Focus Conference in Phoenix. And what did she bring me, boys? Pie crust, pie crust, pie crust. Not only pie crust, but pie crust with cinnamon and sugar. It was like butter and flour and cinnamon and sugar got like married. Butter. And made this beautiful, delicious thing. So Vicky uh, is like a super fan of the podcast. I know. So. Hey. Now, I'm a super fan of Vicky because she gave me cinnamon sugar. And, and she's crust. like, duh, liturgy, guys. That's how yeah. super fan she is. But guess what else? I came to the thing yesterday, and there was a package in the mailroom, and I thought, oh, what's that? It's from Vicky <laughs> Delaney, right? The, came to the thing? What? Yeah, the copy center. You know oh, okay. I mean. You know of what course. I mean. And it was a light <laughs> box, and it looked like it was full of pie crust. And I was like, wow, she sent me more pie crust because it was light. And then I opened it up, and it was not pie crust. And do you know what it was? I do not. It was the Dr. McNamara action figure, honest to God. Wait, you you have your own action figure? Well, there's an action figure that happens to have the same name as me, but it's spelled right and everything. In what context? It's from the Robocop and the Ultra Police uh, movie, I guess. There's like a picture of uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger mm-hmm. on it. And he was the vandal scientist armed with robo-sensor and stun gun. And it has 1,000 robo-caps included with a repeat-firing cap gun. This, How the su- about that? The super figure is? Yeah, this thing right here, yeah. So uh, I sent you a picture of it, maybe just so you can put it up there. But Dr. McNamara is now a vandal and a scientist and not just a liturgy guy. So yeah, so that's go. pretty much what we, yeah, it's pretty much how it is. I have I it hanging on my, on my wall. 
Wow. But from the ridiculous to the sublime, what are we talking about today, Chris? <laughs> who are we talking about today, Chris? We are talking about the late Roger Scruton. Yes. He just died uh, yesterday or the day before, I guess. Mm. And uh, he's maybe not a household name, you know, like uh, J-Lo or something. But in the <laughs> world of people who care about things and thinking and culture and art and beauty and architecture and all of that, he was probably the leading mind of the conservative side of things, I guess. But... I don't mean conservative, kind of like closed-minded, you know, uneducated, don't give me a new idea conservative. This is an extremely well-read guy, written many, many books. Every book you read is full of references to um, literature and poetry and music and architecture. And I, I suppose more than anything else, he was a philosopher of, of beauty and a culture, cultural commenter, commentator. He's probably fam most famous for his PBS series, Why Beauty Matters. So if anybody's hmm. got that... Uh, I think it's usually hanging around free on YouTube somewhere. He was this kind of tweedy Brit, you know, with sort of wild hair like a lot of Brits have, and a uh, very distinctive-looking fellow, uh, very calm and uh, dignified, although I, I believe he came from kind of a middle-class upbringing. When I heard him speak once, he said he was a faux aristocrat, <laughs> which is kind of funny because he had all these aristocratic manners, but he didn't come from aristocracy. So... Um, that's uh, one of the interesting things about him. But it was your idea, Chris, to talk about him today, partly because he's just passed away. And yeah. my, our good friend, Father Nick Blaha, here in Kansas City, offered mass for him for the repose of his soul yesterday because he was a great fan as well. What were you thinking about this, Chris? Well, when I saw, I really don't know too much about him. Uh, I think I picked up a couple of his books and I put them on the pile of books that I'm going to read very soon. And <laughs> yes. he's still there. Yeah. But I knew that, uh, that you knew him and certainly knew a lot about him, but uh, had met him and I think even run a panel with him at one time. And so yes. I knew you were a fan, so that's why I passed and it along to you. My brush with greatness. Um, <laughs> a couple of years ago. What, this the, podcast with us? Well, your goodness. You're, you are the brush with goodness. <laughs> oh, he okay. is the brush with greatness. <laughs> And they're both good, but they're different. Um, yeah, so the Catholic Art Guild in Chicago uh, organized an event in uh, at St. John Cantius Church. They had mass, and then there was a big event at this nice hotel in Chicago, and people gave lectures about beauty and everything, and they invited Roger Scruton to be the keynote speaker, and lo and behold, he decided to come, only from England. And uh, so the woman who worked tirelessly to do all this asked me if I would take him over in my car from... Uh, the church to the hotel. <laughs> so I was like, oh my gosh, Roger Scruton in my car, you know. And But he was very pleasant and very nice, and it was only, you know, a 10-minute drive across town. But then that's we wound the, up... That's the same seat I have sat in many times. Well, that was, yeah. Well, was that that's not the car? only thing you have in common with Roger Scruton. <laughs> <laughs> that was my other car. So, I, yeah, maybe my, uh, my seat is a second-class relic or something now, or third-class relic, I guess. Um, and then I wound up, because I was speaking at this thing too, we sat at the same table, I sat next to him, and uh, very lovely, very um, pleasant, you know, like not a hint of I'm important and you're not, and uh, we had a nice discussion. I gave one of my usual talks about introducing ontology and uh, how the ontology of the church building is a heavenly Jerusalem, and therefore the characteristics of it are X, Y, Z, and the building should look like churches, it's, you know, done a million times. And it was one of the nicest things I ever heard in my life. He said so, something like, 
very well argued or something like that. And I'm like, oh, Roger Scruton said that. So I got him to sign a couple of books. And, uh, but then we were on a panel together afterward, all the speakers, and people were asking questions. And somebody That's asked, when the drama happened. Yes, this is when I became known as Smacknamara instead of <laughs> McNamara by some of the students at Mundelein because, you know, he's a philosopher. And uh, I don't know if he's hostile to theology or what, but he... He doesn't seem to like it, um, even though he talks about it a lot, at least in the discussions we were having that day. And somebody asked about beauty, and I, I went in again into my revelation of ontology, the mind of God, encounter with you know, the things of sacramental realities. And, uh, and he turned to me and looked with a very dry sort of British way. He said, well, if you choose to accept theology as your foundation, and I don't know if I had had too much wine at dinner or if it was the Holy Spirit or what, but I remember being just like, all hyped up and it's like I never thought I would publicly disagree with Roger Scruton any time in my life in front of people but if you're not putting theology bullets in your gun you might as well be shooting blanks and people laughed you know but and I meant it you know like philosophy is good as far as it goes but at the end of the day you know philosophy leads you to the footstep of of knowing who God is and encountering God, the revelation of God. So it's on video somewhere on YouTube. So some of the students from St. John Cantius, uh, the religious uh, group there, um, gave me a gun, Nerf gun, and they wrote theology on the side of it, and they wrote theology on all the bullets. I still have it here in my office. So every now and then when I'm feeling, well, I don't know what, I take my... Uh, Nerf gun out and shoot theology yeah, used to bullets. Shoot, the used wall. to shoot theology bullets at Kevin all the time, I think. Yeah, it didn't do any good, but nonetheless, <laughs> this hey, is. Dennis, uh, yeah, we we know you're a shtick here with the uh, theology uh, bullets and whatnot. But what can you? I don't want to put you on the spot here too much. But I mean, what what was his position then? If he if he didn't like that uh, uh, approach, what can you can you summarize what his would have been from the philosophical point of view about beauty? Yeah. Well, you know, he wrote several books on it, and that um, that PBS—well, it was BBC, I guess—thing. Uh, I wish I was just reading his book, Modern Culture, just last week because I'm trying to get the intellectual foundation for the um, the center here for beauty and culture. So I wanted to see what he had to say about it. And I don't know that he comes out with a claim for what beauty is. He talks about the critique of. Uh, substituting other things for things that have an eternal value or a lasting value or that don't uh, run out. So like a consumer might think, oh, if I, have a, if I buy a lot of stuff at the mall, you know, I'm having a beautiful experience. I think at the end of the day, he doesn't seem to have a theological answer. It's sort of like there's some feeling and some intellectual triggering of what we know is beautiful and we know things are ridiculous. Um, and as I was reading through this, I was trying to figure out, does he actually say what beauty is? And I haven't found it. Um, he says we need it, and he gives a lot of smart discussion around it, but uh, maybe a, a listener would, who knows uh, Scruton's work better than I do would, would say, he defined it here, you know, on page X of, of this book. But he talks a lot about the aesthetic experience as a participation in some emotional response to something in some sense of there being a spiritual reality beyond and that in itself was enough to make a lot of people crazy. You know, he had, he had a lot of uh, admirers, especially later in his life. But he was saying these things in the 70s and 80s and constantly getting attacked and blackballed by people and not seen as a scholar worthy of listening to, partly because he was politically conservative. He's probably what you 
what they call the neocons. He uh, apparently in the 1960s witnessed the student riots in France, and they were uh, turning over cars and setting things on fire in 1968. And there's a I saw a quote of him uh, that he saw what he said an unruly mob of self indulgent middle class hooligans. When I asked my friends what they were trying to achieve, all I got back was ludicrous Marxist gobbledygook. I was disgusted by it and thought there must be a way to defend uh, Western civilization against these things. That's when I became a conservative. So, uh, but, but, now hang on. So, uh, you, you said a little bit why the two of you disagree. Why was he such a, you know, an enemy of, uh, why was he blackballed and, you know, uh, on the outs with, uh, uh, with others who weren't? You know, they weren't they weren't on your side. They were coming from a, a vision of beauty uh, from a theological point of view. Uh, so what what were their objections to his approach? Well, he was poking the kind of l the academic left in the eye with claims like there is such a thing as beauty, that there is such a mm -hmm. thing as the spiritual. There is such a thing as the beyond. He also talked about things like how tobacco shouldn't be vilified you know these funny cultural comments that people would sort of get on him about you know some of what they thought were sort of untenable uh, uh, sort of conservative um, positions um, but he was you know he he was a, a gadfly in some ways but a super smart one that he knew how to to call out the the weaknesses of the academic left and even the political left um, as well and he was a great defender of traditional architecture and traditional art. He would attack the art world, which substituted, you know, just about anything for anything. And when you, if you watch his um, "Why Beauty Matters," you know, there's a famous scene of a woman who who has in the her she's the artist and she puts her bed in this gallery and it's just like dirty sheets and you know wrappers and stuff. And he's like, "Why is this art?" And you know, critiquing the art world uh, kind of got him in some trouble. And this was, you know, again. It's a little more popular now to be able to say that, but if you're doing that in 1982 or 1978, he was considered sort of intellectual, um, intellectually controversial. Controversial. Is that, is that what drew you in? You know, got you interested in him in the first place? His stance on beauty. Well, right, exactly. That's. I'd have to thank my friend uh, again, Father Nick Blaha, because when I was at Mundelein. Uh, you know, I'm not a very well-read person, unfortunately, but uh, he said, you have to watch this video, um, our, uh, Why Beauty Matters. So I watched it with him, and uh, Sandy Stoddart shows up in there. He's the Scottish sculptor who is kind of this classical sculptor who was also vilified by the art world in England until recently. And um, he's just the intellectual uh, firepower behind this rethinking of Western civilization, the concept of beauty, the concept of culture, uh, putting his finger on the idea that uh, culture actually has to be rooted in something important, and that intellectual, uh, that emotional responses don't substitute for, you know, serious, well-read uh, people. Eventually, he became, um, you know, well-known. He became Sir Roger Scruton when he got a, a knighthood from from the Queen, and then was a senior uh, research fellow at, at Oxford and then became, I don't know how to describe it, just a, I don't know, a well-known person who was uh, recognized as being incredibly intelligent and had something really good to say on aesthetics and uh, other things. Hmm. What do you, I mean, if he's a good example, I mean, how is, how is the, the approach or appreciation or understanding of beauty changed in the last 50 years? 
Well, I guess uh, it depends who you're talking to. You know, I think people who talk about beauty the way we do is we're still a there's still an academic minority, right? That a there is such a thing as beauty that you can speak of beauty in an objective way. Uh, that beauty isn't only um, an expression of an emotional state that is then, you know, made present to uh, to other ones. Uh, one of the things that Scruton talked about, and this is the kind of thing that would get him, you know, attacked. He he made up this word called the endarkening of human minds. E n d a r endarkening. Like, Ooh, that sounds mystical, doesn't it? It's the opposite of the enlightenment, right? But. He says that socialization, you know, the behaviors you learn in culture and what's closed off and forbidden are actually necessary to curb socially damaging behavior, right? So, you know, if you're, if you're coming intellectually against the enlightenment as this freedom and license to do whatever, you know, rational argument can justify, and then you say, no, no, in darkening, in darkenment, <laughs> darkening is actually necessary to hold a culture together, um, that that is just that's anathema right to the to the way people think about um how the world uh, goes together and he did talk about you know aesthetics in and culture in relation to religion i guess that's how it relates to what we're talking about you printed out a, and sent me a little link today uh chris mm-hmm. to uh a story about him what uh, what intrigued you about that well I wish now I would have read it closer. If <laughs> <laughs> you send it to me, I figured. Well, Wait, you didn't even read it? Well, I read the headline, you know, like most things. Gosh. But uh, No, the headline is uh, a Scruton on connection between modern art and the loss of the sacred. Right. It says, I think we are losing beauty and there is a danger in that. With it, we will lose the meaning of life. Mm-hmm. That was his warning. So you were like, ah, that all be good. I'll just send it to Dennis. <laughs> Dennis, and he'll tell me <laughs> what it means. Like most things. Yeah. Well, normally I rely on you, but I'll, I'll just bring out a few points that I picked out of his book, uh, Modern Culture, uh, recently. And he's talking about the, the gods, you know, small g, and talking about cultures generally that when they have gods... And he goes through the different things that they that does for people, right? So it builds a community, and it does other things. And um, he talks about you know the, con- the this necessary agreement on the reality of things, and the people who don't agree on it become the heretics. And you know only if something is sacred and important can it can actually be desecrated, right? If it's not sacred, who cares if you step on it, right? Um, but he mentions that a community that has survived its gods has three options. In other words, if you've outgrown your gods, like a lot of secular culture, maybe in England, um, he says you can find a secular path to ethical life, or it can fake the higher emotions while living without them. I'm, I imagine that's his critique of sort of high Anglican worship, right? We, we'll fake the emotions. I love of, that. That's awesome. Yeah. He, he was an Anglican, right? I mean, yep. He wasn't Catholic. No, no, he's Anglican. Uh, or it can give up pretending and collapse. These are the stark choices that confront us uh, in the way of high culture. And if you see that around, you know, in the post-Christian world, this is part of the reason by, you know, post-Christian high culture is in many ways its own kind of belief system. And the Catholics who come around and say, oh, no, there are norms for behavior. There are norms for the moral life. There are norms for art, for music, for worship. They're the enemies, right? Because they've they've outgrown these gods. And what do they do? Well... I don't have to believe anything, but I can be a good person, right? That's a secular path to an ethical life. Or here's the other thing you see in the art world, and it's people you know poke fun at this all the time. Somebody makes some ridiculous thing, and all these people come 
to the art gallery. Like a Dr. McNamara action figure. No, that's not even ridiculous enough. I mean, like, you know, crumple up some metal and uh, what they call uh, outsider art sometimes. So there's a Simpsons episode about this. It's very funny where Homer tries to make a, um, a brick um, barbecue in the backyard and he can't do it so he just like throws the concrete and the <laughs> bricks together with all the stuff and then he puts it out by the oh, yeah. by the road to, as garbage and then this lady from an art gallery says oh this outsider art you are thumbing your nose at the establishment blah 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 blah, blah. right so there's these faked high emotions about something that's objectively <laughs> ridiculous this is, uh, uh, go ahead uh, Chris. I'm sorry it's another example uh, sent to me by a, a literature guy's a listener Roger Schulbrock who uh, he sent me this story to these kids who were in an art museum and one of them took off his glasses and just laid it on the floor. Oh, yeah, so you just right. had. Do you remember seeing this? Yes. And people would walk by it and they'd take pictures of it and they'd uh, take, it, it was like they thought it was a piece of art, but it was just somebody left their glasses there on the, on the ground. <laughs> right, right. Because what does art become? Some emotive reaction to a kind of mysterious thing we don't understand and since we have no idea what art is anymore, oh, glasses on the ground, ooh, that could be something with which I have an encounter. But you see what's happening there. It's not just, oh, there's glass on the floor, bring them to the lost and found. It, you know, what he calls the, uh, the fake higher emotions. Oh, what does this mean? Oh, do you feel the energy of this glasses on the floor? It's like, well, no, right? <laughs> it's, yeah, it, I it, think that's a myopic interpretation, but personally. Um, <laughs> right. We need a proper hermeneutic for understanding. Lenses <laughs> on the floor. We are such... This is your yes, chance to say, good. Jesse, you, you're such dorks, right? <laughs> you guys are such dorks. Right. <laughs> or they give up pretending, he says, is the other option. Right? You, just, you just stop pretending that anything in the world uh, matters. And so, you know, this is the kind of thing that he puts his finger on, like, he pops the uh, the bubble of this kind of high forced fake uh, you know high culture and so he talks too about there's two ways to approach culture one is as the tribesman and one is as the anthropologist so uh, you know people who believe Catholic stuff will will see something that the outsiders will see as kind of odd you know so uh, you take a beautiful statue of the Virgin Mary and it's in a church and there are candles in front of it, and you use it as, as a sacramental encounter, and it's an object that helps your prayer. You take that same thing and put it in the art gallery, and it's just an art thing, right? That is um, an object that no longer is penetrated by the sacramental realities of the Holy Spirit. Which would still arguably be better than a pair of glasses on the floor. Well, right, yeah, at least it's something, right? There's a little bit of the, um, of the art world uh, left. But um, there's like investigation of scientific uh, objects, right? Scientific investigation of, ooh, what does that culture do? And that is not a person who's in the culture. That's a person who's looking at the culture from the outside. Whereas the tribesman who's in the tribe who actually believes in the myths of his culture um, has a different understanding. And so, you know, just to name that, you know, to say, you know what, uh, we haven't, we don't have a culture anymore, you know? In fact, his book, Modern Culture, is, is part of that why he's... Um, what he's talking about. So, so what he's talking about. And so the, the unconsumable he talks about, right? That in a real culture, it produces unconsumable things. Um, wanted, not for its own sake. You know, not, I mean, not for an end, but for its own sake. And we've talked about that uh, before in relation uh, to liturgy. You know, these two worlds kind of uh, merged at one point 
fairly recently, um, the Met Gala had a theme of heavenly bodies a couple years ago, and they put on um, display all of these uh, church vestments and you know, um, you know, different like chalices and things like that. And then all these celebrities came under that theme, and you had like Rihanna coming with a like bedazzled and diamond miter, and you know all this stuff, and it was crazy. It was just like absurd to see some of this stuff. Um, without that proper hermeneutic and just kind of like going crazy with it. Right. And it's in a sense, it's, I mean, in my mind, it's sacrilegious. I know Colonel Dolan defended it as, oh, Catholic culture is still relevant. But, you know, I was watching just uh, yesterday this rerun of uh, I Love Lucy, <laughs> believe it or not. And there's a, you know, Ricky is a band Are there leader. new episodes of I Love Lucy? I don't think you need to say rerun. <laughs> well, Okay. <laughs> Thank you for destroying the flow of the conversation. Um, they, it was called the Indian uh, show or something. And so Lucy always wants to get in the show, right? So she dresses up like Indians. And then Ethel and Fred are trying to convince Ricky they can be in the show. And they come upstairs with, with a you know, a blanket around their shoulders. And he has a broom in his back. So it looks like a headdress. And they're total cultural appropriation of something. From the outsider, they're not scandalized, right? Because it's not sacred to them. It's just this odd leftover of somebody else's culture. Uh, whereas, um, you know, a true Native American who believes in these things would say, wow, how, how could you just take all my stuff and be ridiculous with it? And so that's what happens when you're an outsider. You don't recognize the importance of what uh, what's happening there. You know, every now and then, Scruton got... Uh, attached to things about signifier and signified. You know, we've talked about that many times. Maybe I'll give you a chance to say something here, Chris. So what's mm -hmm. it in Catholic sacramental system? What's the signifier and the signified? Well, the signifier would be the elements of the ritual system or the sacramental system. So those could be windows or the sanctus or incense or a vestment or, you know, especially the matter and form of the seven sacraments and the signified would be ultimately Christ. Christ the high priest. Right. So Christ who is far away in a sense, right, that we don't mm -hmm. see him with our natural senses has to be mediated by signifiers. Mm -hmm. So one of the really cool things, Scruton says, this is on page 34 of Modern Culture, is that in the traditional culture, the signifier signifies the signified. Okay. Makes sense, right? Mm -hmm. The signifier actually reveals something other than itself. But what happens in a post-Christian culture, and he doesn't say post-Christian, but it's a culture that had loses its gods. The awe uh, is not religious, but aesthetic. Okay, so here we go. You take the Mary statue out of the church, and nobody sees it as a participation in the mystical body anymore or a sacrament of signifying Christ, and but says, oh, it's a perfect example of the 18th century, you know, blah, blah, blah school from the certain region in France, right? And all of a sudden, it is no longer an... Um, an instrument that is good as a as a signifier of something beyond itself, but it becomes um, a thing about itself, and then it closes the door to the um, the revelation of that which is beyond itself. So that's one of his big uh, critiques of modern culture, is that when the gods are gone, as he calls them, the aesthetic interest takes over, right? So now I'm not a believer, I'm an art historian, and I look at things like I would look at anything else from the outside point of view. And then they become signs of themselves only and not the, signs of something else. Yeah, this seems to uh, be consistent with what I've heard Cardinal Ratzinger say once upon a time about our age is suffering from a crisis of sacramentality. Mm -hmm. And I think what he means by that is things, no signs no longer signify anything. The other, like you and Scruton are saying, is there kind of these closed doors, closed windows and 
they don't really uh, reveal anything beyond themselves. And that, I think, is... So what I, I wonder if when Cardinal Ratzker would speak about a crisis of sacramentality, that's kind of a theological uh, evaluation. But Scruton here is making more of a philosophical one. But they go, they go hand in glove. There's, there's both a, a real problem. And I think even... You know, I taught a class this weekend, and you, you try to recover the notion of what a symbol is. And, you know, because sacraments are really supernatural symbols. But uh, in the modern world, when you when you hear the word symbolic, most most often to most ears that means empty, meaningless. Uh, there's no there's no other substance there, right? Uh, and and so there really does seem to be in the natural and the supernatural arena a, a crisis of the symbol, a crisis of the sign, a crisis of the sacrament. And if you're a Catholic and your medium is uh, is sacraments, that's a huge problem. Right. And this this happens a lot in uh, sacred art and churches every now and again, where someone says, oh, I want to represent the uh, historical Jesus. And there's a Marian sort of dress from Palestine and, you know, 30 AD or whatever. And Jesus has got his little Torah in his hand. And it's, it's not a sacrament anymore. It's just this kind of odd uh, diorama of Jewish life in the year 25 AD. And it starts to not be anything anymore. And, and nobody cares. You know, nobody goes to those things. They kind of walk past them with this sort of odd thing. It's like artists are making us have this stuff and I guess fills that corner of the church. But nobody ever lights a candle in front of it or prays there. It's sort of an odd historical thing. So, you know, one of the critiques that Scruton makes about modern culture and he's talking about Kant and his writing critique of judgment is that aesthetics is once you have the enlightenment and you don't have a transcendence anymore, you still have a sense that things are kind of beautiful and attractive and the religious gaze becomes the aesthetic gaze. Mm. So art becomes the new participation in something beyond yourself, but it can't be named with the specificity of um, theology. And uh, so it's the aesthetic um, what do you call it? Contemplation would be the way to have some sense of the beyond. And if you read a lot of modern artists and architects, they'll, they'll say this quite specifically. You know, Le Corbusier was the famous modernist architect who designed some churches in the 50s, late 50s mostly. And he said, I'm not a, I'm not a Christian. I'm not a believer. But I have the sense sometimes that there's things beyond me. And when I see light across the surface, you know, it, it stimulates in me this notion to think about what is beyond, right? And he says it's almost religious is the actual phrase he used. And that's not enough. From a Catholic worldview, that's not enough. Now, who has the answer to the Who did the philosophical and theological work to bring this out? Uh, Jesus. Well, Scruton. <laughs> Roger <laughs> but Scruton. But also Jesus. Well, right. When nobody else was doing that, nobody else was saying, here is the cancer of the this body uh, politic. And that cancer is that the sentiment of beauty is not the same thing as a sacramental encounter. Well, he doesn't use those words exactly. Um, Dennis, yeah. well, before we go, whether now or later, I mean, what would you recommend that uh, of his either to read or to watch or to listen to? Well, I'd say if, um, you know, they're, they're not hard books to read, but they do take a little bit of um, concentration, right? It's not like reading a novel. But there's so many of his books. Uh, his aesthetic of architecture is from 1979. That's, of course, one that I'm uh, interested in. Um, this book, Modern Culture, was originally called An Intelligent Person's Guide to Modern Culture, which was hmm. interesting when it was reprinted. It was called Modern Culture. And um, 
Then he has some other uh, Intelligent Person's Guide to Philosophy. So he's trying to um, reach regular people with what we call conservative, but I don't like that word. I like, I like to say more it's trying to reconnect behind the enlightenment to the enduring, to the eternal. And if you want a bunch of Catholic platitudes, you're not going to find them in here, right? But if you want to say, okay, I know the Catholic part of this. What I don't know is why did we do X, Y, and Z? Why did our culture or why did the liturgy uh, deconstruct, for instance? And he even mentions the simplification of the liturgy and how it takes it out of the place of awe and, you know, puts it kind of in the bland a light of day and things like that. So uh, it would be something to uh, to read. There's, I don't know what, 40, 30, 40 books that he's written, but maybe start with... Oh, um, man, that's like Matthew <laughs> Levering. <laughs> yeah, well, his first one is Art and Imagination in 1974, Aesthetics of Architecture, The Meaning of Conservatism, A Short History of Modern Philosophy. And you say, oh, modern philosophy, how boring is that? But, you know, we're, I, what I've come to realize is that the Enlightenment is finally hitting the average person now, right? So the, the intellectuals had it in the 19th century, in the 20th century. Now the average person is finally caught up with this post-Christian, post-Enlightenment worldview. And he's trying to bridge it back to, uh, to that without denying Kant and others, but really saying, okay, here's the rights and wrongs of um, some modern philosophy, and here's how we can rethink what, what we're doing. And I think the Catholic person would say, oh, yeah. That's right. That's the thing that I had a feeling about, but never had the right words for. So for the easiest, I'd say start with beauty, uh, why beauty matters, that um, it's very compelling. It has this great music and he walks around and it's, this is the BBC. Uh, mm-hmm. I okay. Yeah. And people, I don't know if they just bootleg it and put it on YouTube or if it's there. I imagine it's going to get a lot of play on the air, you know, after his death. Um, he was 75, you know, he died January 12th and had cancer and uh, he had this blog where he would write what he was doing every time and all the people who were attacking him for all of his views and he he got put on some council for beautiful architecture in in England and he got attacked for being the sort of, uh, I don't know what, conservative guy who was arguing for, you know, traditional architecture. Um, But in his blog, he mentioned that he was diagnosed with cancer in... um, and he, the doctors told him he might have a week to live. Oh, wow. And then he uh, had six months. So it's very interesting on his blog. It's still there. And he talks about how he's writing letters to his friends and he had no reason to hold back anymore, right? Because he knew he'd be mm. dead fairly soon. And uh, someday it'd be very interesting to see what those letters uh, actually say. I love all of this because I think it's very easy for me to look at, you know, something like the glasses on the floor and be like, what, what the heck is this? You know, but like, I think he does a really good job of processing how we even got there in the first place, which is something I'm, I'm not like quick to ask. I'm just like mad at the now instead of like finding out how we got there. Right, exactly. And you say, why are people in the, on the ground in the street saying, oh, well, if, if anybody has an emotional response to my art, that's good enough. Well, that's somebody thought that at a very high level <laughs> somewhere out 150 years ago, and it took a while to filter down from the art you know, the theological and philosophical writers to the art professors, to the next generation of art professors. And uh, when, when you know the intellectual history, then you can put your finger on exactly what is wrong, diagnose it, and then try to propose some alternative. And I think that is one of the great things that Roger Scruton did for, for any Catholic and anybody who loves art and beauty in the liturgy is to really give an intellectual history of 
the state of things now, and then also to provide some uh, some answers. So, uh, pray for Sir Roger Scruton. You know, I uh, I remember meeting him fondly, and uh, even if we did make jokes about theology bullets, <laughs> you know, uh, maybe our prayers for him now can be theology bullets uh, uh, to God. All right. Well, Thanks, I think I think it's uh, time for a liturgy question, huh? All right. All right. Chris, you can handle that. Dennis sure. did this part. Yeah, I, I did heavy lifting. Now it's up to you. <laughs> All right, fine. So why go to the Liturgical Institute? Well, if you want to serve the church and do liturgical studies from the heart of the church, you won't find any place quite like this. This place is faithful to the magisterium, but it's a dynamic orthodoxy, not dry. And at the same time, it not only makes the faith come alive, it also empowers you to help that be the experience for others as well. Hi, I'm Dr. Scott Hahn, and I want to warmly recommend the Liturgical Institute for your consideration. Pray about going and studying and sharing the richness of our living tradition. Mail call! Oh, Moses, Moses, why do you question me? Why do you care? Today, we have a similar debate over this. Anyone know what this is, class? Anyone? All right, guys. All right, Jesse. Jesse. We have a question this week from Mark. Oh, not Rediger. No, not Rediger. We haven't had a Rediger in a while. We haven't. Maybe. What does Mark hyphen Rediger want to know, Jesse? Sometimes people say their real name and then they sign it Rediger. So we'll see if that happens. Okay. Mark says, I was recently at, I love how people always say like, I was at mass last week. Well, good Uh, for you, Rediger. First of all, good job. Going to mass on Sunday. Done. Mark says, I was going to mass on Sunday and I noticed that during the Eucharistic prayer, during the part where the priest says, do this in memory of me, the priest held up the Eucharist with one hand, and then when he held up the chalice for the next part, he held it up only with his other hand. And he wants to know if this is valid or invalid or illicit or illicit. Well, I presume it's valid in either case if the right words are said. I don't know if that elevation, one-handed or two-handed, affects validity, right, Chris? Correct. Yeah. Valid. All right, Mark, I hope that answers. Now, oh. the question, I guess, <laughs> after that is what? The question is, should what's, you do it, I guess, right? Yeah, well, I'm presenting that to Chris. The question, what's the, what's the issue? I mean, does the general instruction prescribe the priest must elevate with uh, two hands each time? I don't know. Can you find it? I'll take what's a look. This, what's it say in the book? At the elevation, let's see. All right, I'll just do a little background music while you guys do your job. <laughs> your call is very important to us. Please, hold on. <laughs> your liturgy question is very important to us. If your liturgy question were truly important to us, we would have prepared it ahead of time. Okay, it says. Oh, wait, wait. no, no, I'm on the wrong part. We are now researching your question with Chris Carson's. We will let you know when he finds an answer. Okay, so it says... uh, And uh, we're back. He shows the consecrated host to the people, places it again on the patent and genuflects in adoration. Then it says, after the chalice, he shows the chalice to the people, places it on the corporal and genuflects in adoration. So hands are not specified. Okay. So I guess it's it's not. uh, Well, okay. But I suppose there's... It's not contra legem, right? It's not against the law. Yeah. So I think the question would be, as a a priest presider, I mean, what's what's the word? Is decorous a word? 
having yes, decorum, fitting, fittingness, fitting, yeah. grace, beautiful, appropriate, sacramental for what's going on there uh, at, at that moment. Uh, I suppose if Mark noticed it, <laughs> there, you know, there's something about being a ministry. You want to be only noticed so much. And otherwise, you kind of want to be a conduit to let people notice Christ, who is kind of acting and radiating through the minister. So I suppose if you're doing things that people say, hmm, uh, then that that might be an indication that could be done in a different way. So I don't know. What do you yeah, think, Well, here's Dennis? where custom, I guess, you know, it's, it's typical liturgical custom to have the host raised with two hands and the chalice raised with two hands or... Uh, so if it's if it's somewhat distracting, I guess that's uh, an issue. End of well, the world? No. No, it might signify. I mean, if if someone were, were going to give you the m- most precious thing, I mean, you you would you would take take such care with it, you know, in two hands. Mm-hmm. Now I you have know, seen, even, even I have I have seen priests who are maybe a little infirm do this. Mm-hmm. I know I've seen a picture of John Paul II do it in right, late, when he was late, older. Yeah. yeah, late in his papacy. Yeah, well, I mean, this, I hope it's not too mundane and offensive an example, but, you know, think of a uh, football running back, you know, and they're always talking about how you got to carry that ball, you know, and you can't be carrying it out there with one arm or one hand. Yeah, you got to tuck it away so it's not going to be, you know, lost or dropped or something like that. I mean, that's just a very human example, but, but a lot of our things liturgical are based on cultural and social and human things. And so if you're going to if you're going to express and then foster in the people who are watching this, the sacredness of the chalice and of the host, then how you elevate these things can either say that or say something else. And so you would want to elevate these, I I would think. I've never done this myself, being on the other side of the uh, communion rail, real or imagined. Uh, But, you know, you would want to do it in such a way that fosters a faith in the sacrament. You know, there was a... I know this is supposed to be a short answer. Do you remember that uh, Pew survey about a uh, number of Catholics who, percentage of Catholics who believe in the real presence? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, you know, may, many people said, it's oh, like it's because our... It was like 70% said no. Yeah, yeah. And maybe people said, oh, it's because our catechesis is so bad. And a lot of other people said, hey, it's not just the catechesis. It's because when you go to Mass, too often uh, we act like there's no real presence there. By your gestures and postures and actions in the sanctuary, outside of the sanctuary. And that's what's instilling this lack of faith in people is because liturgically we're treating sacred things as if they were not. Oh, so I thought you, you were going to say something else. Then. No, no. <laughs> All right. Well, I guess that's not. the best we can do on on, uh, on that. So it's All not right. contra, contra legem, not against the law and not even outside the law, I would think. But it's just... Uh, Sweet generous, Inappropriate. Yeah. Inappropriate. <laughs> All righty. All right, Mark, I hope and that if answers you. If you have a liturgy your, question, you, you can, can email us at questions at liturgyguys.com. Or you can text DMAC at DMACADY. No, DMAC no. Super Taster. Or you, you could send a DNA 23andMe test to Soldiers Gosh. Grove and see if you're related to Chris, and then only then. Will he answer your question? Yes. And you can come live on his farm. Mm -hmm. Thank you. And God God bless. bless. Now that's a podcast. The Liturgy Guys is brought to you by the Liturgical Institute at the University of St. Mary of the Lake at Aramus 
Society for the Renewal of the Sacred Liturgy, and the Center for Beauty and Culture at Benedictine College. <laughs>